Today we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. As usual, we're going to start with the proverb of the day. Uh, We're going to be in Proverbs 3, verses 1 and 2, only two verses that I'll read to you. Proverbs 3, 1 through 2. It says, My son, do not forget my law, but let your hearts keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Now we can look at this as a father speaking to a son, and that's certainly appropriate. But we can also look at this as a loving God speaking to his children, us. Do not forget my law. Let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Now some may look at this and say, law, command. Sounds a little heavy. I've always heard that about God, you know. He's always trying to tell us what to do. But let me kind of bring it into a different uh, picture or analogy. You go to buy yourself a brand new car, really nice car. Maybe it's a Cadillac, maybe it's, you know, God knows what it is, right? You just take it off the showroom floor and they give you, wait, Mr. Jones, before you leave, here's an owner's manual. So you open up the owner's manual and it says, don't put sugar in the gas tank. I got to use 92 octane, boy, gas is expensive. What do you mean don't redline it for the first month? Don't slam on the brakes for the first 500 miles. All these laws and rules, throw it out the window. I don't want this rule book. Well, in the one way, if you do that, your car will probably last you maybe a year or two, and then it'll just start to break down because you're abusing it. But if you read the owner's manual, the person who designed that car knows how to keep that car running so you can get 20 or 30 years out of it. You see where I'm going with this? The one who designed our bodies, our frames, our minds, our frailties, he gave us a direction manual, and it's right here. Don't forget my law. Keep my commands on your hearts. And you know what? You're going to have your life will go the way it's supposed to go. Throw caution to the wind, and you're going to have problems. So it's amazing how you can take something simple from the Scripture, two verses, that's all, and you can apply it to your own life and to my own life, and we can see how God loves us by guiding us and directing us, okay? And today, the word focus is going to come to my mind a lot as I study Colossians, and we're going to see how even Proverbs 3 ties into Colossians. So the last time we finished up the book of Acts, today we're in Colossians, and I'll just kind of start out with a little background information about Colossians. Number one, Paul wrote Colossians about 61 AD from his first Roman imprisonment to the church of Colossae which is on the southwest corner of Asia Minor and what we now know today as modern-day Turkey. Why did he write it? Partly to combat false doctrine in the church, uh, mostly in the form of a pseudo-Gnosticism and legalism, which we'll talk about as we get into it. But what what better way to combat false doctrine than to get on the right path by having a focal point? And what is that focal point? The focal point that Paul is giving us is that Jesus is the head of the church. Yeah, Pastor, I've heard Jesus is the head of the church. I've heard that. But let's really meditate on what it means to have Jesus as the head of the church. So if your life as a Christian has been a little stormy lately, maybe a little tenuous, hopefully this book should serve as an antidote. It kind of reminds me of when you take... I wasn't a very good photographer, and that's not one of my best qualities, but if you go to take a camera and you focus on an image that's a little blurry, what you do is you have to kind of tweak the lenses to get that picture to come into focus. So what I want to do today is use the book of Colossians to help us to refocus on Jesus as the head of our church. 
So let's jump in. Colossians 1, starting with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Readings or introduction here. Paul says this, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. All of Paul's letters didn't start out like this. One of his letters, or some of his letters, he would say, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. In another letter, Paul would say, Paul, an apostle. Here he says, Paul, an apostle, and by the will of God. Guys, pay attention to this. God has called me to be an apostle. This is something you need to take notice of. Apparently, Paul never visited the Colossian church. He received information on the state of the church by the minister there, Epaphras. So this letter needed to carry some weight of authority to get the recipients to obey it. Because if they didn't, it could have been disastrous for the church. It could have been destroyed as quickly as it started because of the false doctrine that was entering it. Authority is good and God-ordained, Romans 13 tells us. Although in our society, many enjoy challenging authority. A friend of mine read a book on sociopaths. And one of the characteristics of a sociopath is someone who just loves to topple authority. Uh, And it's funny because I guess that Batman movie came out. It's like the the big thing now, the last few years, the Batman movies. But if you ever even read the comics, the Joker was one of Batman's arch nemesis. And he was a sociopath. His sole desire was to topple authority and create anarchy in Gotham City, right? So back to Colossians. (laughs) This is something that they needed to pay attention to for their own good. And we see Proverbs 3 come right back into play. Okay? Proverbs 3. This is something that you need to pay attention to, or they needed to pay attention to. A few ancillary points before we get into the meat of the Scripture. Paul is the main author with Timothy as a co-minister. Okay? He says Paul and Timothy. Uh, Timothy and Paul were knit together in their hearts in ministry. And Paul said often grace and peace. That was a common Pauline greeting. Uh, the Gentiles would often say to each other, Charis, Charis, which means grace. And the Jews would say, Shalom, Shalom, which meant peace. So Charis Kai Eirene in the Greek was grace and peace. It was a, a, a greeting that brought the Jews and Gentiles together. And also you understand that you can't have peace unless you're under God's grace. Romans 5.1 tells us that, doesn't it? So there was a lot in the greeting by itself. Verse 3. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is also in all the world, and it is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard it and knew of the grace of God in truth. And you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declare to us your love in the Spirit. This is Paul's thanksgiving for the Colossian church. And I'm going to break it down because we can just read it, just to kind of get through it. But God's word says that we should meditate. God says we should meditate on his word. So I'm going to break it down for us. Uh, The first thing is, Paul didn't found this church. We went over that. But he was blown away by their great Christian example. Three things he mentions. He also mentions these things in 1 Corinthians. Faith, hope, and love. Faith. 
your faith. What is your faith in? Your faith is in Jesus Christ. That's what starts our foundation. Faith in Jesus Christ and hope. What was the hope in? Hope is in heaven. Hope is in when all this ends, we have eternal life because it was promised to us. Okay, we have uh, a life of, of revelation says no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain. Nobody has to go to work anymore, you know, no more, no more of the things that we don't like. For the former things have passed away and we get to spend eternity with our Lord and our loved ones who are in Christ. So faith, hope in heaven and love, love, love for the saints and also love for the world. Okay, but especially the Bible says to the household of faith which means we should love each other. And when you have that foundation in Jesus and your hope is in heaven and eternal things and you've received that promise of the Lord, you have love. People will see the love. Okay, You can't help not to have that love. And that overflows through other saints. Boy, these people are really tight. i got to say, I was really blessed. Uh, Pastor Anthony mentioned about the potluck. Uh, you know, The majority of you, you stayed. And we all fellowshiped and people got to know each other. There was a lot of eating, a lot of talking, a lot of people brought food. I tell you, that was like a, that was a home run. I mean, it was beautiful. Uh, we're going to have another one on August 17th. But you just see the love that people have for each other. The desire to say, you know what, today could be a busy day, but I'm going to stay with my brothers and sisters in Christ and fellowship with them. Faith, hope, and love. Now, Paul, like any other minister, Paul maybe didn't even know the flock, wasn't among the flock. But just the report of their faith, hope, and love just blew them away. And it was a changed behavior and changed lives as a result of Jesus Christ in their, in their hearts. Uh, and I can see that too. If a pastor friend of mine calls me and tells me about great things that are going on in that church, I'm truly excited to hear that. I'm blessed. Just like Paul heard the reports from Epaphras. Or consequently, if I speak to a pastor friend of mine, and just, I'm just so blessed by what's going on in our fellowship, they are genuinely, I can hear the genuine excitement to hear the reports of what's going on in our fellowship. So you see that going on with Paul and Epaphras. The, the, the change in marriages, the change in people's walks, the change in people's lives. Beautiful reports. Uh, verse 7, we, we hear, we're introduced to Epaphras, and I'll just give you four basic points about this Epaphras. Number one, he was Paul's friend. Number two, he founded the Colossian church. Number three, he was the minister or pastor along with Archippus, and we'll see Archippus later on in this book. Uh, of the Colossian church, and he also had a part in alerting Paul of the heresy that was coming into the church. Almost in a sense, Paul, we have some problems here. You've been called to be an apostle. I could really use your help. So he's kind of reaching out, kind of putting up, again, for the, the movie, he put up the bat signal for Paul to kind of help him out with this issue in the church, right? The Paul signal. Verse 9. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to... Ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthening with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, there's a lot in there, okay? There's a lot of meat to chew on. So let's try to cut it up in little pieces and digest it uh, little by little here. 
This is the prayer and supplication for the Colossians. What did Paul want for these believers? This is important. Number one, he wanted them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. What does that mean? Well, don't we all want to know, everybody here wants to know, what does God want from me? And what does God want for me? You see, it goes in both directions. What does God want from me? What do I do to please God? What does it take for me to get into heaven? How do I know that God's happy with me? What does God want from me? Going this way. But then again, what does God want for me? What what is the future of my life? What is the future of my marital status? What is the future of my ministry status? God, what do you want for me? For those of you who are good in chemistry, you ever see the, the compounds on each side of the equal sign, and the equal sign had an arrow going in each direction, and that was an equilibrium sign, where the potential of both sides of the equation were at rest. Any chemistry majors in here? So that's what a relationship is. You see, it all boils down to relationship. What does God want for me? What does God want from me? It's a two-way relationship. And that's what the Bible screams all throughout the Bible. Relationship. God says, I want a relationship with you. I want to love you. You're my children. That's what God wants for you. Two, he wanted that to be done with wisdom and spiritual understanding. How many people have GPS in their cars? Raise your hand. A bunch of you, huh? You can't follow a map. (laughs) Um, Just don't leave them on the windshields because a lot of times people break the window and steal them. It happens a lot and they're... It's a pain for us to write the reports. (laughs) But GPS, a lot of us have it. This is sort of like a God GPS. You see, with wisdom and spiritual understanding, and the only way that we can have wisdom and spiritual understanding is when we tap into the mind of Christ. Paul speaks about that. that My prayer for you is that you would have the same mind, the mind of Christ, that we all would try to tap into what... What does God think? What does God believe? That's the only way to get wisdom and spiritual understanding. And the Bible says, James, he gives it out liberally. He gives it out freely. You want wisdom? The Bible says you can have wisdom. You ask for it, you got it, God says. But a lot of times we just don't ask for it. The third thing is to have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Well, what does that mean? That actually means that it can indicate otherwise, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Um, it's possible to be a Christian and not have a walk fully pleasing God. And that's something to think about. Stop and think about that. Oh, yeah, I I think my my life pleases the Lord. I I think I'm a pretty good Christian. You know, I I do good things and, you know, I give money to the church and I try to help people that need help. But the Bible says to have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Stop and think about that word. Me, you, think about that. Does your life fully please him? Can I stand up here and say 100% of my life fully pleases the Lord at all, the, all times? I'll go first. No. The answer is no. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's something to strive for. We want to have that walk that's fully pleasing to God. And there's a way to get that. Does my life honor God? Question we should ask ourselves. Do I just squeak by as a Christian or do I live that victorious Christian life? What am I doing in my life? Is my life honoring God? And am I happy to just squeak by and then just take everything that the world has? Or do I want to fully please him? And you know what? As we go through this book, when we start to focus back on Jesus, these things start to be added to us. The fourth thing that Paul speaks about is to be fruitful and to increase in the knowledge of God. Here's a picture of growth. The Christian life should be marked by continual dynamic 
growth. There's nothing static here. There's no stagnant ponds here. This is a motion, that, that, not emotion, but a motion, two words. This is continual dynamic growth. I've heard people say, oh, yeah, I've read the Bible. <laughs> so I read the Bible, close it. I don't have to read it again. It's like a book that I read years ago in history class. I read the Bible. No, the Bible is the living word. I've read the Bible several times, and I don't know everything that's in there. And sometimes I, I thought I read a passage four or five times, and then I read it again, and God gives me a new understanding. That's why the Bible is called the living word. Okay, It's something that you... You know, it's not something that should be a big book that's, that's 20 pounds and it's on the coffee table and you've got to dust it every so often, right? And you open the pages and they're still stuck together because they're crisp. Some of you are laughing. And that's good. You know, it's a nice decoration piece, but hopefully there's another one that you read that looks beat up, that the pages are worn, that there's writing in it and sticky pads all over the place. And like me, you've got to glue the pages back in because it's sentimental and I don't want to give it up for another Bible because it's used. It's the living word, right? It's a, a, a continual dynamic growth. And as we use the Bible, our growth should be um, ever increasing. And... To top it off, the cherry on top is all this is done in God's power and not our own. Why? Because otherwise we would be burnt out. Zechariah 4.6 says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. If we try to do it by might and by power, and I've been there, <sighs> oh, burnt. Well, what am I doing wrong? I'm doing it in my strength. I'm not doing it in God's strength because he doesn't want it to be a chore. Even when God spoke to the priests in the Old Testament and told them what type of clothing to wear, I believe it was they had to wear linen but not wool because he didn't want them to sweat while they were working for him. God wanted the priests to, to be joyful in their service to him, not to be a chore. Oh, look at me. It's, this is a tough job. That wasn't what he was looking for. Spurgeon had an interesting quote um, that somebody asked him, how do you do the work of two men? He said, you forget there's two of us. Now, he's either speaking about himself and the Holy Spirit or him and Jesus, but whatever it is, he had divine help, right? I've been asked the question, how are you a police officer and a pastor and a family and have an Asperger's kid? And if I really think about it, I might get scared, so don't ask me that question. <laughs> but the truth is, the truth is I have help. And if I do try to do it in my own strength, I will get burnt out. And I've gone through those phases but I find that it's a joy. I'm excited to be here. I love this book, guys. I hope that you're feeling and you're catching the same excitement that I have. This is fun. This is great. It's God's word. It's something that, you know, you know Paul, Paul preached from morning till evening. I'm not going to do that to you. But it, it's just something that he just enjoyed doing. It was his whole life's, um, you know, moniker, so to speak. Um, and then... Only in God's strength, because in verse 11 it says that this is to be done with patience, long-suffering, and joy, which are fruits of the Spirit. These are supernatural qualities. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, and self-control, all nine of them. And these are supernatural qualities. I don't possess them by, the, by my own. Only when I'm in the Lord do I possess these qualities. Only when I choose to follow him. And Jesus said, remain in me in John, right? He says, remain in me. Because it's a constant thing that we, we're close to the Lord. And then those qualities come out in us. And in verse 3 and in verse 9, Paul says twice, uh, he speaks about praying for the Colossian church. And we're only in the first chapter and Paul spoke twice already in the inter inter introduction about praying for them. This goes to show you the importance of prayer. And, you know, 
I'm so blessed that especially at the end of the service, I know that there's core people, if not all of you, who are praying for, for us as, in leadership because there are spiritual battles, there are attacks, and we need that prayer covering. I kind of liken it to um, if you ever see a, a battle, you see those reenactments of the old battles, and if I'm going and I'm a general and I've got my troops and I'm going against a formidable force and, you know, there's other clans or so ever. I mean, you see the movie Braveheart, right? He had employed the different clans. Sometimes they would show up, sometimes they wouldn't. That was a problem. So if you're going against the other force and you say, I need these, I need you to cover me. I need you to guard my right and my left flanks and my hind uh, quarters and, and to give me some, some protection when I go into the enemy. If these guys don't show up, you're in trouble. Now, I look at prayer kind of the same way. We're going into a spiritual battle. And you don't say to somebody, I'll pray for you and then forget about it. This is something that we should take serious. I'll pray for you. Make that commitment to pray. There's even times that I'm in my prayer closet and uh, I'm like, you know what, Lord, there's somebody I was supposed to pray for. I can't remember who it was, but you know, Lord, I pray for that person. He knows. He's got it covered. But prayer is very important. And in verse 12, I'll read it again. Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Giving thanks to the Father, okay, who has qualified us to be partakers. How has he done that? There isn't this inheritance that the saints in the, in the light receive. And we know that the saints are only people who have been set apart for the Lord. So if you call yourself a Christian here and you say, I'm set apart for the Lord, you are a saint. And how do we get that inheritance, that glorious inheritance of everlasting life? Well, how have we been qualified? Because on our own, we can't stand before God and receive that. There's nothing I could do personally to do that, to get that. It's because he gave us his son to believe. God gave us his son, Jesus Christ, to believe that whosoever would believe on him would not perish. And that's how we're qualified. Verse 13 and 14. It tells us that God has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the son of his love. That's a mouthful. Well, the world is divided in one or two categories. You're either working for Satan or you're working for the Lord. The Bible is very clear about that. So don't get mad at me. It's right there in the scripture. You're either sons of the darkness or you're sons of the light. You're not sons of the dim light. You know, you're either sons of the light or sons of the darkness. That's it. One or two categories. And you know what? The world, it bothers the world. The world hates when Christians use absolute terms, especially when it comes to the spirituality, because it, it maddens them. It's so maddening that they become illogical. You ever have a discussion with somebody who's antagonistic to the faith? And they say, oh, you're one of those people that believe in moral absolutes, don't you? Yes, I am. Uh, so what are you saying? Are you saying that, what are you saying, that there are no moral absolutes? No, they're not. Are you absolutely sure that there are no moral absolutes? You get where I'm, where I'm going here? You're painting them into a corner. I am absolutely sure that there are no absolutes. That's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. It defies logic, right? There's a certain subject that you could take in college or, or higher courses about logic, reasoning, and persuasion, and that's illogical. That defies reason. You can't argue with a person like that. Norman Geisler is a great author. Um, he writes a lot of this um, uh, logic, uh, the study of logic and how it relates to the scripture. Okay, And he goes through a whole bunch of examples of how uh, people become illogical when they try to refute what God has already established. I mean, there's another example that I wouldn't use. but uh, So if you're talking to somebody and they don't believe, right, and they say there are no moral absolutes, what works for you may not work for me. You have your own set of standards, I have mine. 
Okay, so now if I take, and I don't recommend this because I am in law enforcement, so if you take both of your hands and you start strangling them and they say, what are you doing? This works for me, I like this, you're bothering me, so I'm strangling you, right? But, but you can't do that, it's not right. No, it works for me. It does, may not work for you, but it works for me, you see? So the whole argument just kind of goes out the window when you really start to get into it, all right? So don't do that. <laughs> and the last thing it says that we've been redeemed through his blood which is what paid for us. Now, in those days, if you understood the Roman Empire, they had slavery, okay? Slavery is sinful, but uh, since the beginning of mankind, people have taken advantage of other people for economic gain, okay? So in the Roman Empire, it was no different. Depend on who they attacked, uh, whatever the you know, tribes that they attacked on the outskirts of Rome, if they didn't comply, they would not only slaughter them, but take a lot of people into slavery, it didn't matter if you were Germanic, it didn't matter if you were the Jews, it didn't matter who you were, um, the Romans were, would enslave you. And they said it up to 50% of the Roman Empire at one point in time was in slavery. So understanding that, it is possible for somebody to go to the slave market and buy a human being and take them home. And then when they get them home, they take the shackles off of them, they give them clothes, they give them a robe to wear, they give them food, and they say, you're part of the family. Now, was that common? Absolutely not. Did it happen? Sure, sure. So you could bring somebody into your your home, take them out of the slave market, and make them an equal with you, and even make them an heir. Do you think that that slave would be indebted to this person treating them like that? Don't call me master, call me brother. I said, don't call me master, I'm your brother now. Sure, they would be indebted. Well, what about us? You see, we were all on the, on the block with the chains, and what we were enslaved to was sin. You know, we could say, I'm free, while the chains dangle in the air, and the, the two fetters are attached to your wrists. That's what we are prior to Jesus Christ. We're in slavery to sin. But Jesus shed his blood. He gave his life on the cross. He shed his blood. He took, I don't think that the crucifixion, my belief, and I think it's very scriptural, is that it wasn't the actual pain that caused him torment. I believe it was the fact that he, t- he bore the weight of the sins of the world for the first time in eternity and the last time in eternity. He bore the weight of the sins of the world and the grievousness and the disgusting nature all at once onto his body and the Father at that moment had to turn away from him. That's what I think was painful and, and torturous to him. But Jesus did that. And by doing that and shedding his blood uh, on that tree, he has bought us back from the slave market of sin, taken the chains off and said, not only are you in the family, but you're an heir. So he has redeemed us through his blood. And when we use, throw the word around blood, 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 let's really think about what he's done for us. Okay? Verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now this is really some heavy stuff here that I want to break down. There's a lot in here. This is the climax of this entire chapter. Everything really leads up to this because this is the preeminence of Christ. And this is almost going to be a little bit of an apologetics lesson. In verse 15, he said he is the image of the invisible God. The word in Greek is icon. In English, we get the word icon from. 
It literally means, translated, a mirror image or the exact representation. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is God. There's no, he's not a good man, not a nice guy, some guy who went around healing people. He is the exact representation of God, God on earth. It says he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, there's a hermeneutical error that's made when you start to parse the word firstborn. Ah, firstborn. In the English, that means get away from that. Okay? The word in the Greek is prototakis, weird, weird, weird word, but we get the word in English prototype from. And that word literally means a perfect example, basically an original that everything else has been modeled after. Jesus was the firstborn of the resurrection, and the resurrection is modeled after his resurrection, or so to speak, he broke the mold. Jesus is the preeminent one. Understand that. So when you really get to the climax of this chapter, what you do is you really build the case of who the real Jesus is. There are so many that have a a picture of Jesus, the different cults. One cult will try to take Jesus and take him from his high throne and make him a mere man and say, we're Christian. No, you're not. You don't have the picture of the real Jesus. It's right here in the scripture. Some will take Jesus and say, yeah, he is God. Hey, that's good. You're Christian. Yeah, but you could be like God too. (laughs) When you die, if you're a good whatever, you can have your own planet, your own universe, and you could be a God and have everybody worship you, your own kind of universe self-starter kit. You know what? You can have that. I'll worship God for eternity. I'd rather do that. So that's what you have it. Here's the picture of the real Jesus. Here's your case being built up. In verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible. And then it says, All things were created through him and for him. That's interesting because um, John says in John 1.3, or let's start with John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, there it goes again, and without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus is almost the, well not almost, but he's the gatekeeper to creation. Nothing was made unless it went through Jesus Christ. Pretty amazing. If this doesn't smack of the deity of Christ, I don't know what does. In verse 17, And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now, I'm kind of going to go a little bit into, I think that Christians should really know why they believe. I think if somebody is, especially somebody who's educated, asks you a question, why do you believe what you believe? I just believe. Well, we really don't just believe. We don't have blind faith. There's there's a reason for why we believe what we believe. So I'm going to go a little bit into science and apologetics here. Verse 17. Also, Micah 5.2, Pastor Anthony did a study on uh, the book of Micah, the fifth chapter recently. Uh, It says that Jesus is from eternity past. He had no beginning. Okay? So Jesus is one before all things, and in him all things consist. The word in the Greek for consist literally means to be held together. So through Jesus, everything, everything you see, the chairs, me, the podium, you, your hair, everything is held together by Jesus Christ. What does that mean? doesn't really seem to have a lot of weight there. Let's go to the atomic level. Look at the, everything breaks down to, well, you, we used to say everything breaks down to atoms, but now we know that in the nucleus of the atom and the protons, there's, a, there's gluons and quarks, so you know, the particles are getting smaller and smaller. But let's just use the atoms as the basic building blocks of life. You have a nucleus. You have every atom has uh, the, the neutrons and, and protons in the nucleus in, in a tight ball, and orbiting around them are electrons. Okay? 
Now, there's different forces that science has named that hold the electrons from collapsing into the, the uh, nucleus and from the, the nucleus exploding because of the positive charges. Okay? You have the strong nuclear force that holds the nuclear together. You have the weak nuclear force. You have electrostatic force that has to do with the electrons. And you have Coulomb's law that says that charged particles that are likes repel. Okay? So basic lesson there. Jesus says, or the Bible says, that in Jesus all things are held together. The nucleus really shouldn't be held together because protons are, have a very strong charge. And there are some uh, neutrons mixed in there, but the protons shouldn't be staying together in that ball in the nucleus. Let me just turn to a different scripture. 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord. The Apostle Peter says, one day the elements will melt with fervent heat. Okay, the word element is the word stoichia in the Greek, where we get in the English stoichiometry, which is the study of elements. Okay, now this is amazing. The elements are coming apart or dissolution with fervent heat. There's a picture of nuclear fission. Nuclear fission is when the, the uh, nucleus starts to break apart and it releases an incredible amount of, of, of energy, like the atomic bomb. So basically what we have is these men who didn't have the electron microscope, they didn't have any understanding of atomic structures. Uh, as a matter of fact, for up until the last century, we, man thought that the cell was like one of the smallest building blocks of life until we got more powerful equipment and could see that there was things that were smaller than the cell. And we're, we're learning more and more as time went on. But 2,000 years ago, you have men of God speaking about atomic energy, atomic structures, uh, nuclear fission, without knowing anything about those structures. Isn't that incredible how... God gives these men insight to things that, that they could learn 2,000 years later that we would learn that they didn't know at their time. It's pretty amazing. So understand this, that in Jesus, everything is held together. There's really no reason, yeah, we can put a name, strong nuclear force, nucleus. But that's all we can do is put a name on it. We really don't know why this happens. So how does that make you feel today knowing that we're held together, our bodies are in motion, we could take a beating and still you know, heal, and, and the intricacies of our body, that... Because of the love of Jesus, we're held together. And through Jesus, we consist. It's pretty amazing right there. Verse 18. It says, Then he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Verse 18. Jesus, he is the head of the body. He is the firstborn from the dead. We see in 1 Corinthians 15 that he is the, uh, the, the, the model of the resurrection. Okay, after Jesus' resurrection, then different resurrections happen, and then the last resurrection is when the unrighteous are resurrected and they're judged and then thrown into the great white throne judgment. But Jesus was the model of the prototype for the resurrection unto glory. Having risen, 1 Thessalonians 4, one day he will come back for us. The Bible says, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise first. And then we who remain and alive will, will rise with them, and we will meet together the, with, with, with our brothers and sisters in the clouds of the air to be with the Lord. Thus we will always be with the Lord. So there will come a time in 1 Corinthians or 1 Thessalonians 4 where the Lord calls us up and raptures us up from the, from the earth. That should set us straight on what we believe about Jesus Christ. So I think after reading this, it's kind of hard for us to look at this and then put ourselves on the throne. We see so much power and so much glory, so much learning about Jesus that, you know, as Christians, hopefully we can't help but put Jesus as the preeminence in our life. So the question is, is Jesus the head of your home? Is Jesus the head of my home? Do our actions show it? 
Is he the king of your life? Or are you the king of your life? Am I the king of my life? These are important questions. Do our lives reflect that Jesus is the king? Once we get the idea of Jesus' centrality, his supremacy, and we get the knowledge of Jesus, then our lives should fall into place accordingly. Is it a sin issue in our life? Focus on Jesus as our head. As we start to do that, it starts to work out. Is it a marital issue in our life? Focus on Jesus. Best thing you could teach somebody in marital, premarital especially, or marital counseling, is that as the husband and wife both focus on Jesus, what normally happens is they start to grow together because they're focusing on Jesus. It's just a natural occurrence. Simple triangular uh, equation, but it's, it's simple, but it works, okay? Uh, is it spiritual lackluster? How can we study the book of Colossians and have spiritual lackluster? Eh, I'll I'll pray when I feel like it. I'll I'll read my devotions with my family when I feel like it. I'll come to church when I feel like it. Spiritual lackluster. I don't know if I want to serve in any capacity. This is the answer. Focusing on Jesus as the head of our life. Trouble with trial, self-centeredness. General frustration with where we are at life. Focus on Jesus. I'm going to leave you with a, um, a small, again, simple illustration, which I've used before. If you... I know it's silly, but please do it. Um, put your hand out, like put your, this finger up, okay? Put it in front of you. And put, it, put yourself between, or your finger between you, your eyes, and me. Now, put your finger out and focus on me. How many fingers do you see? You should see two. <laughs> now focus on your finger and look at me. Focus on one finger. You should see two of me, right? Isn't it simple and stupid? But it works. <laughs> The bottom line is we could, what we normally do, and I think that that's why we read the Bible, so we could refocus, we focus on the world. We focus on our kids. We focus on our finances. We focus on people that irritate us. We focus on Route 9 traffic. We focus on all that stuff. And when we start focusing on all those things, Jesus is blurry. You don't get a good picture of him. But when you focus on Jesus, all the other stuff is in the background. It doesn't matter because your focus is on Jesus. And that's the choice, just like with the finger trick. No matter how hard you try, you can only focus on one of me or one of the finger at the the same time. We're not designed to be able to see them both singularly. We, We see in depth perception. And it's the same thing with God in a spiritual sense. If we're focused on everything else in our lives, we're not focused on Jesus. Don't kill the messenger. We need to refocus on Jesus. That's important, okay? So Jesus is the cure for any of the ills that plague our walks with Jesus. And any problems can be combated with Christ as our center. Let's pray.